Legal immigrants across the United States pay taxes, to be sure. But those who have spent less than five years in the country are often not able to qualify for any health care coverage under the state's Medicaid program. If a patient in this situation develops an illness that requires long-term care, who pays? And how might this scenario financially impact a hospital's capacity to maintain cost-effective strategies for care? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest is Dr. Stephen Larson, Assistant Dean of Global Health at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Larson is also an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and an expert on migrant health. Welcome, Dr. Larson. Thanks for having me. Dr. Larson, how long are we seeing immigrant patients stuck for extended periods without recourse for hospitals to transfer to? Are we talking about days, weeks, months? In terms of a situation where it becomes obvious that they need to be repatriated, my experience in talking with folks who've been involved in this is that they exhaust all different avenues, everything from discussions with the consulate to social services, people getting on the phone with the government. I mean, I don't think it's something that people embark on lightly, I think, and that can play out over weeks to months as it becomes apparent that the chronicity and the, the acuity is going to make it impossible to move the person beyond a skilled nursing facility, then the challenge arises because there's no reimbursement to those skilled nursing facilities. And the transition from the hospital to that level of care, there's a, there's a breakdown. I believe that federal regulations state that the hospital must arrange post-hospital care. Is that correct, and is it always happening, or isn't it happening? I don't know nationwide. I think the article that Ms. Sontag puts out there has questioned those plans and the feasibility and the reliability of them. In my experience with patients that have been hospitalized in the hospitals where I work, there's been every effort to ensure that the transition has been smooth. I believe that there's a minimum time that a legal immigrant has to be in the United States before they get some federal benefits. Is that correct? Yeah, the welfare reform in the mid-90s, 96, I believe, the public PRWOA, Public Responsibility Work Opportunities Act, which was welfare reform essentially, has embedded in it a tremendous volume of anti-immigrant kind of legislation. A lot of that sort of came out of Southern California during the early 90s and what was known as Proposition 187. And, you know, there were a lot of restrictions in terms of accessing Medicaid, Medicare, for legal immigrants, people with papers. And five years was the sort of set upon agreed number of years that one had to sort of stand on their own before the system would back them up. I do think, however, that many states, when the government passed welfare reform in terms of health care, their block grants were given, and the states are basically at their own choice to decide how that money gets spent. There's no standard approach to it, to my knowledge, across the country. Some states, for instance, will allow prenatal care to be administered. Some will allow S-chips. Some won't. It's hit or miss. Dr. Larson, certainly you as a professor of emergency medicine would know this. Do you sometimes find in the emergency room that's a place where money is lost as well? I believe most ERs are money-losing <laughs> propositions. <laughs> At least that's what I've been told. 
In these situations, do you think that would be somewhat heightened? Well, when welfare reform was passed and the PRWOA was put in place, there were some exceptions to the rule that gave recourse, for instance, to hospitals to retroactively recoup some of the losses in terms of what were considered emergency medical care. And the criteria, for instance, were active labor, life-threatening process, limb-threatening, organ-threatening, and I think the fifth was pain. So in those situations, the hospital has recourse to recoup from medical assistance, emergency medical funding for both documented and undocumented. Dr. Larson, I've read about the repatriation company that offers a network of connections to hospitals in Latin America. What exactly is this all about? I would imagine that there are probably contractual agreements to be recipients of patients sort of guaranteeing up front a level of care to those individuals that sufficiently satisfies the U.S. side of the issue. Very similar to the COBRA laws that are enacted, patient dumping, I think, is generally frowned upon in our profession. And by guaranteeing a level of care on the repatriation you know, side of it on the country that's the recipient would satisfy, I think, many of the questions and concerns that the providers on our side would feel. That having been said, once the repatriation takes place and that individual sort of disappears into the night, I think it would be cautious to assume the best outcomes are going to happen because limited resources exist and those hospitals are going to be pushed to provide care to an individual who's already you know, on the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder. I mean, that's what drove them up an economic gradient to come to the United States to work in the first place. So those hospitals are, I would imagine, going to be you know, driven by dollars and cents to you know, make a decision on how they're going to care for that patient. Now, you mentioned before that some states are setting aside a large amount of money to deal with these costs, such as California or New York. Are all states beginning to do this? You know, California and New York are two of the five original main destinations for undocumented immigrants. And so I think that their sensitivity to this issue is probably heightened. I would imagine, especially in the setting of recent immigration trends and the fact that undocumented immigrants are being found in Bangor, Maine, for instance, in the lumber industry, that these are going to be issues that the nation's going to have to wrestle with. What is the responsibility once a hospital in the United States sends someone to their home country? Does that responsibility, at least from the aspect of financial, end? I think that's going to be a situation that the lawyers are going to have to sort through and resolve. I don't know that there is any responsibility. Honestly, if we can take a, a <laughs> get political on yeah. you, but if we could take a prisoner and put him in Guantanamo Bay where our <laughs> laws don't reach and you know keep him sequestered for seven years without due process, I think once you've exited the 48 contiguous states, you're outside the arm of the law. I don't know what responsibilities there are, honestly. Is there a broad range of care facilities offered, let's say, in Guatemala or El Salvador or other countries? When you explore the healthcare systems, and in fact, it was fascinating. I'm working with some trauma friends in Guatemala City right now on a project. And, you know, with the decline in the economy, all of a sudden, that economic gradient that moves people to try to find ways to survive is suddenly being reversed. And they're anticipating and, and even beginning to see a return of immigrants from the United States back to those countries. And they shudder at the thought of the volume, the unemployment, and the issues that that's going to you know, create. 
as far as the infrastructure and their capacity to provide care, many countries, for instance, in Guatemala, you'll have almost three tiers of healthcare delivery. You'll have a public health system that, by and large, provides care for everybody. As you can imagine, it's pretty stripped down, pretty basic. Once you leave major urban areas, it drops off to puestes de salud and little posts, which are staffed oftentimes by a nurse. Very basic rudimentary resources and skills. That's, in general, the public system. What they have is, it's almost like the equivalent of a VA system. Many countries in, you know, the Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Mexico, has a social security system, which employers put money into and guarantees healthcare for the worker and their family up to a certain age. That level of care can be a little bit more sophisticated and more consistent. And then if you're in the upper echelon of the society, the top 5%, 10%, then you can have just about any, any procedure that you would get in the United States at your you know, beck and call. So there are several different ways this could go, and it would all depend on the resources of that individual as well as their status. You know, obviously, if they're not working in Guatemala, then the Social Security system isn't going to be applicable and they're going to default to the public health system. I'm sure some of the listeners are thinking, well, if one of our citizens, meaning from another country, decides to go to the United States and and live there illegally or legally and work there and make money and even set up a home there, and then they get into trouble and want to come back to their home country, do they sometimes, do you think, look at them as disloyal and they say, well, you decided to go to the United States? Well, you're in the United States now. Now, you know, it's funny. I sat in on a conference about five years ago, and my take-home lesson from this whole discussion on immigration, and it was an aspect that I really hadn't considered, these guys, and back then it was a predominantly male population that left their families behind, they're considered heroes in a way. What do you mean by that, sir? Well, you know, they venture 2,000, 3,000 miles north into climates that are not familiar to them, to cities where they're not really welcome. They're that sort of Steinbeck grapes of wrath. We want you to pick our crop, but don't be a part of our community. <laughs> it's a real entity. And don't make yourself too visible. And, you know, that hostility is, you know, to take that on, just head on into that. These guys are considered heroes. Do you think that's changing in terms of our perception of that? Well, I don't think we've ever looked upon it in that sense. You know, we've looked upon it in a very black and white. They're illegal and they broke the law and therefore, I mean, it's very easy for a person to assume that. I think if we look back historically to our own origins in terms of the immigration patterns to the United States, you know, whether you were coming out of Ireland or Italy or Sweden, those were oftentimes precipitated by economic hardship, famine that moved you in that direction. And you know, so this is not something that is just derived and been created. This is the history of our immigration into our country. And has that increased or decreased or stayed the same in recent years? In terms of the immigration pattern? Yes. Well, I think it's very clear when you look at the numbers and the volume that beginning in the 90s up until around 2006, when it peaked, that the numbers were just off the chart in terms of undocumented immigration. We're talking millions and millions going from the 90s when there were a couple of million to current times when there were 11 million. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Stephen Larson. 
We've been discussing issues of immigration and health care in the United States. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to a special segment focused on global medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening.